0: Good morning, like Baldwin. Today's scripture reading will be from Exodus chapter 20 verses 13 through 17. You can find that in your bulletin or flip there in your Bible. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. All of you. There we go. And uh, happy Fourth of July. Great to be with you. We're going to talk this morning about the law of liberty. That's how... The New Testament describes the Ten Commandments. This is the third in our series on the Ten Commandments, and as you can see from the scripture reading, we're gonna be dealing with the last five commandments, the law of liberty, five ways to love your neighbor. You know, I was thinking back about uh, when I first became a Christian. uh, Like many of you, I was not raised in a Christian home, so I didn't learn the gospel until I was about 16 or 17 years old. And it was when I was 17 that I put my faith in Christ and I went off to college and I began to learn more about the Christian life. And there were a couple things that uh, were really meaningful to me back in those days. One of those was just the realization that I was a child of God and that my sins were forgiven. And as the worship band led us this morning, I was really struck by those words in the song, No Longer Slaves, and I'm gonna read this chorus again to you. I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. And I remember as a freshman in college, when that sunk into me, I, was, uh, I had an upper bunk in my dorm room, and I remember sitting there thinking, I, I, I cannot believe this, that I am a child of God and that my sins are forgiven. It was such amazing grace to me. But there was something else that I noticed in my heart that has been true of my life from those days and that there is still a part of my heart that does not want to obey God. There's still a part of my heart that chafes at the commandments of God, that chafes at the restraint that is there in the law of God. It's as if it's as if there is a part of me that doesn't want to go God's way but wants to go my own way. If you remember, whenever I watch people that are bowling, I don't know how many of you like to bowl anymore, but it's it's, it's it's so fun to go bowling. And I'm one of these guys that when I bowl, I just I just put my palm out straight and I just try to roll it straight down the middle. But I admire these people that get up there and they are like, they are, it's like they're doing ballet. They just go up and they whip that ball around and it goes down and at the last minute and it breaks right into those pins and the person gets a strike. And I love the way that ball breaks. But there are some of us, when we bowl, we don't know how to do that. And so we roll the ball and it breaks over into the gutter. You could say that that ball is breaking bad. And there was a part of me in my heart that didn't want to go God's way, that chafed at God's law, that chafed at his negative commandments. And throughout my life, there is still a part of my heart that wants to break and go bad. I wonder if you can resonate with that. I wonder if you can identify that sometimes in your heart. And I learned something as a young Christian that really helped me to appreciate the commandments of God And especially when God forbids us to do something because we chafe at that. And someone said one time, they said that the reason God gives us a negative command is to protect us and to provide for us. It gets back to the nature of God. It gets back to what we believe about God. And God gives us his commands to protect us and to provide for us. And that is helpful as we get into The second half of God's law. Now I want to make a couple of comments just about the Ten Commandments, about God's law, because as Phil Riken says, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, is a multi-use item. It is very practical. It is very useful. For example, the Ten Commandments are useful to society. Ted Koppel, who was a famous newscaster a decade or two ago said one time in a famous speech that God didn't give us ten suggestions, he gave us ten commandments. And the ten commandments, the law of God, are good for society because they restrain evil. A commandment like, you look at some of these, you shall not murder. A restraint upon evil. You shall not steal. It is a restraint upon evil. But secondly, the law of God is useful as a mirror. When we look in the law of God and we understand its implications, we look in the mirror of it and we realize what we're like. It exposes us, it exposes the flaws in our character, it exposes the sins in our life. Properly understood, it does that. Now the mirror cannot clean us, but it reveals something so that we would be washed so that we would turn to Christ. This was especially the case with the Apostle Paul. He described this in Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul was raised in a church background. He was raised in a religious background. He was like the perfect model of a Jewish person who kept the law. But he said that when I got to the 10th commandment, And you'll notice the 10th commandment here, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant. Paul said, when I got to that 10th commandment, which was the commandment to not covet in my heart, he says, it produced in me coveting of every kind. So even a religious person like Paul realized that his his bowling ball, the bowling ball of his heart was veering into that gutter. That he himself was a sinner. He looked into the mirror and he saw that and it made him cry out to Christ. It made him turn to Christ for forgiveness and for eternal life. But there's also a third use of the law. And and this is especially for all of us here. I realize that not everybody here is a believer in Christ. And so this morning as you hear the law of God, I hope that you will welcome it as a mirror and and, and use it to expose your heart and to point you to the cleansing that is available in Christ. But for those of you that are believers, the law of God is a reliable road map for life. It is a guide for the Christian, a guide for the, the Christian's growth in Christ. What we refer to as sanctification, becoming spiritually mature, becoming more like Jesus. Even Jesus said, That the great commands of the law are summed up in love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that sums up the law of God. So this morning, last week, uh, Mike Aitchison talked about commandments 2 through 5, which focus on our duty to God or our love for God. This morning, we're going to focus on Commandments 6 through 10, which refer to our duty to our neighbor. So you'll notice if you look back at verse 9 in your bulletin, it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So there's all this reference to our neighbor. So when Jesus talks about love of neighbor, the Ten Commandments, especially the last five, point us to that. Now, I've entitled this sermon, Five Ways to Love Your Neighbor, but really, I'm only going to go into three because of time, because what I want to do is I want to go into three of these in depth. That is the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandment. So let's talk about the sixth commandment. If you look at, in the text there, if you look at verse 13, it says, you shall not Murder. Now remember we said that the commandments of God are to protect us and to provide for us. And I want you to see that the commandments of God are good. They are good for you as a Christian. So what is good about this commandment? This commandment is good because it protects human life. It is good for society and it is good for you as a believer because it protects human life. God God gives these commandments to protect us and to provide for us. The Bible is honest about what murder is. The first murder occurred way back in Genesis chapter 4. You'll recall that the fall of mankind into sin, in other words, the ultimate breaking bad of mankind, occurred in Genesis chapter 3. And what resulted from that is all of man's inhumanity to man that we have seen throughout the centuries. Every bad thing. And the first time that it happened was in Genesis chapter 4, where Cain murdered Abel. Now, what we want to do is we want to look at these commandments through a New Testament lens, or through a gospel lens. So what does the New Testament do with this commandment? Well, if you go to the book of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 15... The apostle John wrote, he uses this example of Cain and Abel and this example of murder, and he says to Christians, do not be like Cain. He said, everyone who has hatred in his heart is a murderer. Think about that for a second. So what the New Testament does through a gospel lens, it doesn't make the commandments easier, it makes them harder because it says that murder actually begins in the heart with hatred in the heart. If you go to Matthew 5, 22, Jesus said that when, if we have anger towards our brother, we have committed murder in our hearts. And so what the law of liberty teaches is that murder begins with anger and hatred in the heart. Now, do you see how the Bible can serve as a mirror. God's this the law of God can serve as a mirror because when I look in the mirror, I see in my heart my own anger and my own hatred. I don't like to th- I, I would not like to think that I have hatred towards another person. But if you could live in my shoes, if you could see into my heart, if you could do an x-ray of my heart, you will see examples in my heart this week of anger towards individuals, of ill will towards individuals, and that mirror of the law exposes my heart. And what it does is it challenges me, it challenges me to love my enemies and to forgive those who have harmed me. You guys, that is so challenging, but isn't it powerful what the Word of God does? It's good for society, but is also a mirror for us in our hearts, and it is a guide for our hearts. The other thing I can say when you look at the law of God through a New Testament lens is that it, is it attaches to every negative command a positive statement or a positive command. So what does Jesus said? He says to love your enemies, not to murder them, not to hate, hate them, not to have anger towards them, but to love your enemies. It also means that one positive use of this command is not only for us not to commit murder, but to stand up for life, for the dignity of life. One of the things that we said as a church in our statement on racism is that we believe in the dignity of every person from the womb to the tomb. You know, our former administrator was Margarita Smith, and something that you guys may not have known about Margarita is that she uh, not only shared this commitment to the sanctity of life for unborn human beings, but she put her, her beliefs into action. She went to work for a local organization called Choices Clinic. And there they cared for women who had uh, unplanned pregnancies for women who were in in in, in just uh, in circumstances that they were caught up in, and what they wanted to do, rather than condemn them, rather than judge them, they wanted to help them, and said they would offer free ultrasounds to these to these women. And I will never forget. I will never forget Margot talking about her friendship with a woman who uh, decided as a result of that ultrasound, as as a result of the support that she received, that she would go ahead and carry her baby to term. And there was a human life. Margo was standing up for life so that after that baby was born, she could actually meet a human being who had been saved. In his uh, commentary on the Ten Commandments, Phil Riken, excellent commentator, talks about all the ways that we can stand up for life as Christians, not only for the life of the unborn, he uses the example of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan story is about a, a person who had been beat up on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and was left dead on the side of the road. And when Jesus told this parable, he told about this Good Samaritan that would would lift this man up, would take him, would provide him with a place to stay and with food and would care for him. And in a way, that person was standing up for life. There are all sorts of actions that we can do in life as we stand up for life. For decades, for decades in not only our country, but in other countries around the world, there has been a movement towards um, a cheapening of life and the disposability of life. And one of the ways that shows up is in care for the elderly. Molly and I, uh, as we were flying back from our annual pastor's conference from St. Louis, we sat next to a man whose wife was suffering from Alzheimer's. And you and I live in a, in a country and in a, in a belief system in the dignity of life. And I admire a man who would say about his wife, in sickness and in health, I will continue to love her. And around the world, euthanasia, doctor-assisted suicide, taking a life at the end of life. Not necessarily referring to somebody that can't, the life can't support them, support them, but there are people who want to kill people through euthanasia near the end of their life to dispose of life. So as believers in Christ, we take to heart the words of the Bible, you shall not murder. And instead, we stand up for the dignity of life. And again, in our own hearts, we can talk about these macro cultural issues all that we want. But the challenge of this passage is to fight against the anger and the hatred, it is so strong in the world around us, but with believers in Christ, it ought not to be so, even towards our enemies. Let's go on to the next commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and let's reflect on that. That is found in verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Like all the rest of the commandments, this command was given both to protect and to provide. So what does this commandment protect? This commandment is good because it protects God's gift of sex. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you realize that God is not anti-sex. He created it. He created the pleasure of it. And the gift of sex is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Talking about a unity and a oneness, both spiritually as friends, but also physically in sexual intercourse. And the Bible says that the man and his wife were naked and unafraid. If you read in the Song of Solomon, if you read in the Proverbs, you read all throughout the Bible, there's this this beauty that God gives to the gift of sex. And so what God wants to do is he wants to protect the gift of sex. We live in a culture where sex has become cheapened, but we see that gift in the Bible. Now what about adultery? The Bible is honest about the flaws of its heroes. The Bible is honest about adultery. So I want to refer you to one story. You don't need to look it up now, but I would encourage you to read it when you get a chance. It's the story of David and Bathsheba found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. What happened in that story is David as the king in the power position that he had was supposed to go out to war. But instead of going out to war with the other kings, He stayed in his palace. And one night he was walking along the the top of his palace. It was a beautiful night. And he looked across the way and he saw a naked Bathsheba. And because he had the power, because he was the king, he asked for her. And he committed adultery. She was married to another man, a man who interestingly had gone out to war. And that decision of his violated God's gift of sex, God had put a limit to protect and to provide not only for David but also to protect Bathsheba from the harm that would be done to her. And there were all sorts of consequences that cascaded from that violation of God's law and the commandment of God. Now, we said that we want to look at these commandments through a New Testament lens or a gospel lens. The New Testament, it doesn't contradict the Old Testament. It actually makes it more difficult. So, for example, think about Matthew five twenty-seven and 28. Jesus said, for a man to look on a woman with lust in his heart is to commit adultery. So the New Testament takes this command, you shall not commit adultery, and it applies it to all sexual intercourse outside the covenant of marriage. It applies it to all forms of sexual immorality because remember, God, rather than being an ogre, wants to both protect and to provide for us. This passage and the whole Bible teaches respect for the body of another person. It protects both men and women from object, objectification, from becoming objects. I'll never forget, uh, Russell Brand is this British media star. He does all these YouTube videos. Several years ago, he did this great, this great little sort of shtick on pornography. Now, I don't, I don't have any reason to believe that Russell Brand is a believer in Christ, But this is one of the most powerful things I've ever seen because his angle on it was the issue of objectifying the opposite sex. In that case, objectifying women. And he did a great job talking about that. But God wants to protect both men and women from that. You know, when I look in the mirror, remember we said that the law is a mirror and it says you shall not commit adultery, but the Bible says if you lust for a woman in your heart, You've already committed adultery. In other words, adultery and the violation of this gift, it begins in the heart. So when I look in the mirror at this one, when I hold up that mirror to my own heart and my own thoughts and my own mind, what it does for me is it shows me my need for Christ. It shows me that I am not perfect. It shows me that I am not righteous. That like all, I've I've got part of my heart that wants to, Break bad and go into the gutter. It shows my need for Christ, and it challenges me to fight lust. In Second 2 Timothy two twenty two, it says this: "It says, and I learned this as a as a college student to flee." It says to flee youthful lusts and to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But it challenges me to fight lust, you know, and and. My guess is there's not a person in this room that never struggles with this, and I would count myself among you. There's a great quote from Martin Luther in regard to lust. He said, you cannot stop the birds from flying over you in the air, but you can stop them from building a nest. Those lusts of the heart don't ever go away until we, are, until we reach glory and we reach perfection. But God has called us in this life with a heart that tends to break bad to fight against those lusts, to turn to Christ for forgiveness. Unless this passage seems impossible, which it is, for the many in this room and the many watching online, who have struggled with all of these things in your life, many of us who have broken God's law in different ways in this area, I wanna offer a word of gospel hope and gospel comfort because in John chapter eight, there is the story of the woman who was caught in adultery and she was thrown down in front of Jesus. And all of the religious leaders, all the Pharisees were picking up stones to throw at this woman who had committed adultery. And Jesus looked around and he said, let him who was without stone, without, excuse me, him who was without sin, cast the first stone. And every one of them went away because none of them was without sin. And then Jesus said these words to the woman. He says, is there no one left to condemn you? He said, neither do I, condemn you now go and sin no more that is the grace and truth of the gospel you know the new testament also gives a very positive use to this this passage because it the the bible calls us to over and over again find ways to love and respect others for example it says to husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and so If you're here this morning and you're a husband and you think about your marriage, what God has called you to do is to love your wife sacrificially in the way that that Christ has loved the church, for you to take the initiative to forgive her, to die for her, to give yourself to her. It's not enough just to not commit adultery, but God calls us to something more. God calls us to model the beauty of marriage that is described back in Genesis chapter 2, the gift of sex. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. And let's take a look. Let's dive into the third one that we see here. You shall not steal. Let's talk about you shall not steal. want to go a little bit more deeply into this one, and this will be the last one that we'll take this dive into. The commandment you shall not steal. Well, all the commandments are given to both protect and provide for us. They are good commandments. They're useful to society. They're useful to us as Christians. This commandment is good because it protects property. It protects private property. Imagine what an amazing boundary this places for a society and how good it is. One of the People that I follow on Facebook is the president of Moldova. It's a small country in Eastern Europe, formerly a part of the Soviet Union, and when she became president, she began to go around exposing all this corruption in society, corruption in politics, and corruption in the courts. All, which resulted in the theft of other people's property, people dis- disadvantaging other people. And she exposed that, and she's fighting a war. That is why this command is so good for any society that is attempting to set up those rules. It is important to protect those rules in a society. It is good for society. But for us in this room, it is also A challenge, it is a warning against all forms of theft, including tax fraud, even when it can't be seen by others, padding our expense accounts, or insurance fraud. It challenges employees to not steal from their employers, and it challenges employers to not take advantage of their employees, stealing from them time that they were not really accountable for. And through a gospel lens, this, this, this command, you shall not steal, there is another sin of the heart. Remember in you shall not murder, the sin was hatred. The sin was anger. Un- under you shall not commit adultery, the sin was, was lust and objectifying other people. But in this one, you shall not steal, the underlying sin is greed. The underlying sin is greed. It, this is probably among Christians in America, greed is probably, it probably gets away with being the most acceptable sin. You can't get away with, you know, you can't get away with murder, can't get away with adultery, but greed is something that's almost acceptable among us, and so we need to be alert, more alert toward it. And some of us might think we don't struggle with greed, but if we look at it carefully, we need to say to ourselves, it is quite possible that my bowling ball in the area of greed is veering over into the gutter in some subtle ways. The underlying sin is greed, and the power of the gospel is shown in transforming greed into generosity. There's a story in Luke chapter 19 about a rich man by the name of Zacchaeus. And what he was doing is he was cheating people through tax fraud. He was cheating the poor. He was stealing from the poor. And when Jesus came, what he said when he came to know Christ, he changed his heart. Is he, is he repented? He changed from all the ways that he had stolen. And he says, if anybody, if I stole from anyone, I will give back fourfold, and I will give half of what I possess to the poor. That was the change that the gospel brought about in his heart. So. If you're a believer in Christ, what, what you are on a journey away from greed and toward generosity, and you will be challenged in that area on a regular basis. One more thing we can say about this commandment, you shall not steal. Through the lens of the Gospel, through the lens of the New Testament, it highlights a positive command. So if you go to Ephesians 4:28, it says this. It says, let him who steals steal no longer but let him work with his hands so that he may have something to share with a person who has need. And so this command, you shall not steal, gives dignity to work, it gives dignity to having a job. Having a job, it gives dignity to making money and it gives dignity to generosity. The positive command instead of greed is generosity. So three commands that we've talked about today, We looked at them as good for society. They are a mirror for our hearts. And I want to close with a story to talk about how you and I can use these commandments for our spiritual growth. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was doing some in-depth study on each of these commandments. And the one that challenged me most most was the one that I didn't preach on the ninth commandment. So I want to read it to you right now. I want to share how this challenged me because this was just a couple of weeks ago. The ninth commandment says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now that's a command against lying. But as I as I, as I studied it more and as I read the totality of scripture on this commandment, it's not merely about being honest in a court of law, but it's being honest and truthful in all areas of your life, particularly when speaking of your neighbor. So this is a guard against, for example, all kinds of gossip, all sorts of misrepresenting people, all sorts of presenting people out of context, all sorts of going to them, somebody else, rather than going directly to the person. And, and the more I studied this and the more I, lo- I saw my heart clearly in the mirror, I could not escape the fact that there were areas in my heart and words where I, had, where I had compromised this command, where I had not been careful in how I had spoken about individuals in my life. And I had to sit there and think about that, and it was actually quite, it was, it was quite convicting for me to take a look at that in my heart. And I wonder, I wonder if this morning you can look at the Word of God, you can look at the law of God, and let it have its full impact on your heart. And when I was reading this, I was actually sitting by the pool. It was on a Saturday morning and just kind of spending some time with the Lord, and the Holy Spirit began to really do a number on my heart. And I had to figure out what I was going to do about the ninth commandment because I was busted. I was, I was breaking bad, if you will. I had, I realized that I had three options. One is I could deny what I was reading and hearing. I could deny it and sweep it under the rug and pretend that I was a righteous person, but that would not have been truthful for me to deny the sin that was in my heart. Well then I had a second option, I could go into despair. I'm a sensitive soul. I become aware of areas where I have broken God's law or broken God's commandments and I could fall into despair. But remember what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has not called you, God has not called me to despair. And I realize that through the gospel, the goodness of the gospel, God has not called us to denial of our lust, our hatred, our violations of his law. But he's also not called us to despair, but he has called us to depend on the work of Christ for us on the cross. First John 1 John 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That mirror of the law of God is such a gift But there's a greater gift in the cleansing blood of Christ. If you're here this morning and you're teetering on despair, God's word to you is you can be cleansed simply by confessing your sins. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, in a minute, we're going to go to the Lord's Supper. And uh, the Lord's Supper is such a beautiful picture of the good news of the gospel. And before, we, before I comment on that, I'd like you to look at a couple of quotes in your bulletin. Could you pull out your bulletin right now? i want you to turn to the inside first page. Because as you've heard the law of God, as you've heard these truths, as you've seen it through a New Testament lens, I want to read a couple of these quotes to you so that you can think about them, so that you can take these truths with you. Look at the top quote by Donald Gray Barnhouse. It says, The law of God is like a mirror. Now the purpose of a mirror is to reveal to you your face Your face is dirty, but the purpose of a mirror is not to wash your face. When you look in a mirror and find that your face is dirty, you do not then reach to take the mirror off the wall and attempt to rub it on your face as a cleansing agent. The purpose of the mirror is to drive you to the water, in our case, the good news of the gospel. I like what Charles Spurgeon said in the quote right, right below that, as the sharp needle prepares the way for the thread, so the piercing law makes a way for the bright silver thread of divine grace. You see, if we, if we denied our sin, do you realize that we'd be missing out on the silver thread of divine grace? J.C. Ryle said the same Holy Spirit who convinces the believer of sin by the law and leads him to Christ for justification will always lead him to a spiritual use of the law as a friendly guide in the pursuit of sanctification. Have you seen that this morning? You can use the law as a friendly guide. Only Christ has perfectly fulfilled the law. So William Cowper makes this observation to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. You see, what God wants to do is rescue us And he wants, in a sense, in our hearts to give us a new heart that, though for the rest of our life, we'll have that part of us that wants to break bad and go into the gutter, gutter, that that he wants to have a heart that is breaking good, that loves God's law. David Patrick Cassidy, this quote, the gospel isn't an instruction manual on how to get it together, but it's a declaration of mercy for all who can't. You know, as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to say that the Lord's Supper itself, the gospel, is a declaration of mercy because it is for all of us in this room who admit that we have sinned, whether it be in the area of adultery, in the area of murder, in the area of lying, in the area of theft. It is for those of us, who not who are perfect, but who admit their sin before God, and we don't deny it. And It is for those of us who look To Christ for forgiveness so this morning the invitation to participate in this meal this gracious meal of the gospel is for all those who simply recognize their need for a Savior if you've not yet turned to Christ for salvation we would rather you wait until such time as you sincerely trust Christ and turn to him for forgiveness let's take a moment and pray as we come to the Lord's Supper. Lord, as we come to this meal that you've given to us, which is emblematic of the gospel to which the 10 Commandments point, we set apart these ordinary elements from their ordinary use for the purpose of this sacred use. We thank you for these blessings and we pray in Jesus' name.